This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode. Good morning and welcome to the April Eye on the Market podcast entitled Frankenstein's Monster. In, in the 1800s, there was an Italian scientist named Luigi Galvani that was experimenting with electricity and, and frogs to see if he could generate movement in them after they died. And it was the inspiration for the uh, Frankenstein, Dr. Frankenstein novel. And um, uh, that's a metaphor that I was thinking about this week, is creating life in inanimate body parts that, uh, that he happened to dis- source from deceased criminals using energy from a lightning storm might have sounded great on paper, uh, but the, the invention obviously ended up having some negative consequences that Dr. Frankenstein didn't think about. And I think the same is true for the Fed. Uh, they, they were very excited and convinced that 10 years of negative policy rates uh, – 10-year Treasury yields below 1%, and a doubling of the balance sheet from 4.5 to $9 trillion was in just two years recently was the right thing to do and was the largest monetary experiment in U.S. history. It turns out that has negative unintended consequences as well. And uh, like the townspeople all fleeing Frankenstein's monster, some depositors are now very wary of U.S. banks with substantial underwater loans and securities whose yields uh, the Fed had manipulated. So in our March 10th piece, we had a chart uh, that, that uh, it went viral for all the obvious reasons. It was a chart that showed the pro forma impact of unrealized securities losses on bank capital ratios. Um, but in the rush to write something on the day that Silicon Valley Bank failed, um, I neglected to mention another casual, re- casualty based on the Fed policy, which is all the residential mortgage loans and other loans that were underwritten at perfectly reasonable loan-to-value and debt-to-income, but at very low coupon rates. And now that mortgage rates have doubled from 3 to 6%, there's another issue to think about here, which is the unrealized losses on loans due to higher interest rates. <clears throat> so the... the uh, we have an adjusted chart in this week's piece on on that issue. And uh, so then you see the common tier one capital ratio for each bank, adjusted then for losses on securities like last time, and then also adjusted for additional losses, uh, uh, unrealized losses on loans. And uh, there's a couple of chart in, charts in here showing that the more, that certainly banks differed in terms of how well their management teams navigated this monetary experiment. But the more you got flooded with deposits uh, from 2019 to 2021, uh, the the bigger the challenge was because a lot of those banks just had so much money to put to work. And a lot of their preferred stocks are now trading at distressed levels uh, to reflecting that. Now, to be clear, the presence of unrealized losses on a balance sheet of a bank is not abnormal and is consistent with what happens when rates go up. The problem this time is that some banks got so many stimulus-related deposits at a time of low rates that their balance sheets are stuffed with these low-yielding assets. And then to reiterate, this is only a problem when large deposit outflows cause unrealized losses to be realized. So the new rules at the discount window that allows for banks to borrow against securities at original book value rather than lower market value should help. 
uh, but it doesn't address all the problems for all the banks. Um, many system indicators are now stabilizing, um, but you know that could change. And we have some charts in here showing that the, the drawdown in commercial bank deposits is now one of the largest on record. The pace of the drawdown has slowed. Uh, the drawdown has been concentrated, obviously, in smaller regional banks. Uh, the discount window borrowing has stabilized. It looks like the money, f the money market fund inflow surge has stabilized as well. Again, we have charts in here on all of this. Um, the borrowing by the Federal Home Loan Bank reflects member banks borrowing from it. That's also come down from peak levels, um, and regional bank stocks have stabilized. Uh, that said, Friday after the last Friday after the close, uh, First Republic announced that it was suspending payments on uh, on its preferred stock, and so uh, obviously some of these stresses are ongoing. But um, I thought it was important to give everybody an update in this week's piece on the issue of the unrealized losses on loans, because that's a peculiar issue in this cycle um, that we have to think about as well. In addition to Frankenstein, there was another monster sighting recently. Um, Swiss regulators reenacted a scene from Struvopater. If you don't know who he is, you'll have to look him up. Um, and completely wiped out Credit Suisse contingent capital securities uh, and delivered even larger losses to those holders than than those experienced by owners of the Credit Suisse common stock. Uh, I won't go into detail here. This, this is an issue that's not of interest to everyone. Um, I looked into the European cocoa market in 2016 with, with Anton, my colleague Anton Pill, and we were really skeptical about their investment merit in times of stress, and we wrote that buyers are essentially selling a bunch of short options on the bank's earnings power, its capital base, the business cycle and regulatory discretion. And we, we thought this optionality was extremely underpriced. We were concerned that incentives might even prompt issuers or governments to wipe out these contingent capital securities in advance of a, cap, in advance of a capital raise. Uh, and we, we included in, in this month's Eye on the Market the text of what we wrote at the time. Uh, the bottom line is that the, the Swiss, uh, the Credit Suisse Coco Prospectus clearly states that what could, what happened to the contingent capital securities was part of the risk from the beginning. Write-down events, viability events, it was all there. And um, as unorthodox as some of this may seem, uh, the risks that were, were highlighted in the prospectus and is entirely consistent with what we wrote about at the time, which is that there's a lot of regulatory discretion involved in investing in these European contingent capital securities. A lot of people are arguing, I've been reading, that, well, you know, the the U.K. and the other European versions of these are not the same as the Swiss versions. Well, technically, that's true. Um, there are some circumstances when European or U.K. banks would be undercapitalized, and instead of seeing these securities written to zero, they would simply have their uh, payments suspended for some period. Uh, or, or maybe converted into common equity. But <clears throat> all those provisions are only applicable in cases where the bank is still a going concern and has breached its capital ratio trigger. And, and, and that's possible. But credit, look at Credit Suisse. They went from viable on Thursday to unviable on Sunday without any undercapitalized phase in between. And um, these days when banks fail, it can happen so rapidly that you don't get that intermediate phase where there's a 
time to think about what's going on and, okay, let's convert the preferreds to something else. Um, with all of those other COCO securities in other countries in Europe, uh, if those banks went from viable to unviable quickly, um, they would be written down to zero as well. So we have a couple of pages in here that explain these issues. Um, and, and in some ways, the most concerning thing is that, you know, I joined J.P. Morgan in 1987 and consider myself someone who understands the financial sector. It's, it's, it's unnerving that the capital and liquidity statistics that, that everyone relies upon ended up of being such little use in assessing the insolvency risk of Credit Suisse. We have a table in here showing how Credit Suisse ranked at or near the top versus all of the other EU banks on all sorts of capital and liquidity ratios, and they failed anyway. So uh, profitability is something that those um, ratios don't capture and uh, is one of the reasons why we, we focus a lot on uh, profitability and, and balance sheet strength when we're trying to figure out how healthy these banks are. The longer section in, the, in this month's on the markets on commercial real estate, and everyone's talking about it, and there's a good reason that everybody's talking about commercial real estate, um, you know, given the post-COVID occupancy shock that's taking place in the office sector on top of the adjustments that have already taken place in retail over the last few years. So at first glance, the, the commercial real estate ex excesses don't look that bad in this cycle. There were two prior cycles that were much worse. One took place in the mid-1980s, and, and the other one, obviously, right before the financial crisis in, t in 2008. We have some brief descriptions of what the, the catalysts were in both of those prior periods. The, <clears throat> the, the amount of commercial real estate borrowing as a percentage of GDP is roughly half of those peaks this time around. Um, the underwriting in the commercial mortgage-backed securities markets are also much better than they were uh, before the financial crisis in terms of loan-to-value and credit enhancement and, uh, you know, the rating agencies and investors and the, the, the legal system has done a much better job this time around. There's three big buts here. <clears throat> First, commercial real estate, commercial mortgage-backed securities may be underwritten better this time around. But they're only, you know, 10 to 15 percent of all commercial real estate lending. The vast majority comes from regional U.S. banks, which have accounted for 90 percent of the increase in bank lending since 2015. So what the regional banks are doing in terms of their underwriting standards, that, that, that's what matters. That's point number one. Point number two is that there are some structural post-COVID occupancy problems in the office market that may result in extremely conservative lending standards, even to trophy properties. And then the third issue is it just turns out that the next couple of years are peak years for commercial real estate maturities across the whole spectrum of uh, uh, CMBS, banks, insurance, and, and other lenders. So the, the issue of the, of the stresses in the office market are interesting, right? You can look at vacancy, you can look at shadow vacancy, which is you know space under construction or space which is where the leases are expiring soon and things like that. The controversial part is the estimate of the of the third thing, which is underutilized space. And when COVID started, we we started tracking Castle data. Castle with a K is a company that looks at all the key fob swipes and and looks at that as a measure of office utilization. Now some Castle utilization statistics feel really low to us. 
Um, New York City is, is an example. According to the Castle data, New York office utilization is only back at 50%. Um, that feels low because when we look at the Long Island Railroad, subway, Metro North, and buses, all of those things are back up at about 70 to 75% in terms of utilization compared to pre-COVID levels. And so, and all of those people are, are most of those people are coming into work. Um, and so it's an imperfect measure. That said, these key fob swipes is, is one way to start in terms of thinking about the pressure on the office market. And um, we've got some statistics here, you know, most of which, a lot of which, not all of which, but a lot of which look pretty gruesome for the office markets in terms of really high levels of vacancy, um, increasing amounts of sublet space, um, and then the work from home trends, which are, which are kind of unrelenting. So the share of hours worked remotely is now about 30%. It was 60% at the peak during COVID, but much higher than the pre-pandemic levels. I don't know why my computer keeps doing that. I apologize. Um, uh, then 4%. So 4% was the amount of hours worked remotely before the pandemic peaked at 60, now at 30, and has been stable there for quite some time. And um, employees in, in, in surveys continue to, to desire something like two and three quarters work from home days a week compared to two and a quarter from employers. You know, that, that implies that this work from home stuff is, is here to stay. And so... We have information here on, on office rent growth and leasing activity. Um, and then, you know, and some of, the, some of the expectations from some of the sell-side reports are, are pretty dire. There was a Morgan Stanley REIT report that assumed, like, underwriting at 40% LTVs, con continued declines in net operating income, 7.5% cost of debt, all of which would result in cap rates for office of almost 10% and a 40% decline in office values from current levels over the next couple of years. That sounds really dire to me, <clears throat> but as an exercise, we do have a chart in here that shows how a property underwritten a few years ago, if its debt happens to come to, to due today, and you know the cap rate's 200 basis points higher, NOI has declined, and a, and a modestly lower loan-to-value, you could quickly see the, the debt let's say it was 70% of the property value before, would now be underwritable only at 40% today. So that's a lot of pressure on properties that are seeing their debts mature. Um, and then the last part of this section uh, looks at what's going on with the regional banks and how they're the largest lenders in hotels, retails, industrial, and office. And we have a chart in here that looks by bank at commercial real estate as a percentage of total loans, and then office as a percentage of those commercial real estate loans. And obviously, some of the, some of the smaller regional banks really stick out here. Uh, J.P. Morgan's Investment Bank did a stress test that assumed some pretty severe delinquency and uh, re low recovery rate assumptions for, for office and for retail. Uh, they only ended up with about a 0.4% at most hit to the tier one capital ratios, which doesn't sound that bad. The problem is that their analysis also assumed 
that 2022 levels of pre-provision income would persist over the next few years. So if you make a lot of money, it's easy to absorb uh, write-offs on bad loans. Um, but something tells me that a weakening economy and higher deposit rates are going to squeeze those pre-provision income levels, in which case the hit to capital would eventually be higher. So that's a lot of information already in this podcast. There's a, there's a two-page uh, summary of our economic and market views in here in terms of how the U.S. data looks very good contemporaneously for Q1, but what are some of the weakening uh, indicators that we see for Q2, Q3? And then at the, at the back, we have a one-pager on a table on San Francisco, which is kind of incredible to see. Uh, it looks at uh, downtown recovery rankings for the largest 60 cities in all of North America, and San Francisco comes in dead last in terms of its downtown recovery compared to, to pre-COVID levels. And um, <clears throat> there, there are some big questions here about municipal solvency, public transit, the impact of rezoning, and a bunch of other things that we'll be focused on in the years ahead. But this, was a, this is a very stark table when you look at what's going on in San Francisco uh, versus the rest of the country. Uh, so that's it for this month. If you missed it, our uh, 13th annual energy paper was released at the end of March and um, along with a podcast and a webcast and things like that. And, uh, and so make sure that you take a look at that as well if you're interested in the subject matter. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again next time. Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblist is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.